Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For he saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Merry Christmas. Um, It is a joyous time. It's my favorite time of year. Is it not yours? It's a beautiful time. I love the lights. I love decorations. Because all, you know, Ultimately, they point to Christ. He's the light of the world. I've said this before. You know, Luther's believed to have the first Christmas tree. Evergreen, everlasting life. Trinity. Lights. He went home and put lights on a tree. And we followed the tradition. It's a good tradition. But may we not get caught up in the tradition. May our focus be the Savior to whom all these things ultimately point. Uh, The gospel writers, the gospel writers under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, um, have recorded for us uh, the the history of Christ's first advent. And each of the writers having specific truths that they want us to know about Jesus through history. Uh, Mark's emphasis is on Jesus the servant, who came to serve and to suffer. Luke's focus is on Jesus, the Son of Man, the one who came to share and to sympathize. John, um, he, he focuses on Jesus as the Son of God who comes to reveal and to redeem. And we see there his deity on display. In Matthew, um, his primary audience being um, the he, a Hebrew people, Jewish people, he, he sh- he's shown as the sovereign, the, the one who comes to rule and to reign. Everything in Matthew's account focuses on his messiahship, that he is the anointed one, that he's the promised king, that he's the sovereign who rules and reigns. For he's the only one who has the right to reign. In fact, the opening sentence of Matthew provides the key. Chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Line 1 of Matthew's record emphasizes that Jesus, the Christ, comes from the line of David. Naturally, David was Israel's great king who fostered in the royal line of Judah. He was from the tribe of Judah, from which Messiah would come. So the primary purpose of the genealogy of Jesus Christ is to, is to prove to Jewish readers in this day that Jesus of Nazareth is the seed of Abraham, that he is the son of David, that he is indeed the long-awaited for Messiah. Amen? Now, as a covenant document, Matthew, the genealogy reveals the faithfulness of God in keeping his promises from generation to generation. Abraham and his seed, that promise would be fulfilled. 
Judah and his tribe, that promise would be fulfilled. It was to encourage a Hebrew people while under the yoke of bondage in Egypt for 400 years. It was a promise to David and his house. A promise to the Jews who pined away in exile. And even sinners of a Gentile lineage, as we shall see. The Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to include less than admirable names in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In it, we find the names Judah and Tamar, Rahab the harlot, Bathsheba, she was the one that David committed adultery with, Manasseh. You know, the Holy Spirit could have led Matthew to leave out certain names, you know, the undesirables, if you will, as Jesus' human ancestors. But this goes to show us that no sinner is beyond the saving reach of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Rahabs, the Judas. And what it reveals for us is is God's mercy for all who believe, no matter how weak their faith was, did a lot of them have a weak faith? Yes. Do any of you have a weak faith at times? Yes, we do. So, we see people listed with a weak faith. We see people who sin greatly against God listed in that genealogy. Have any of you ever greatly sinned? Yes. Also, regardless of how late in life they came to faith and repentance, we see their names listed. So a study of all these names in the genealogy in chapter 1 confirms the gospel promise that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What we witnessed this morning is not a focus in chapter 1, but a focus in chapter 2 to a group of Gentiles who came from a faraway land to worship Jesus. And we find some interesting things here as we look at the account. And Matthew is concerned to highlight many things, but three things will hold our attention this morning, beloved. Number one is this. You can write them down as we go. Number one is that Christ's identity in coming into the world is both veiled to some and unveiled to others. It's hidden from some and made known to others. To some is given the ability to recognize him as who he is, and to others, they're left blind in their unbelief. Secondly, Matthew is concerned to highlight that Jesus is the object of worship. Jesus is the object of worship. He is the one to be valued. He is the one to be worshipped above all others and all other things. Interesting for anyone who has a problem worshipping things. Everybody worships somebody, amen? Everybody worships something. Number three is to show us that Jesus is born according to the Scripture. In other words, he is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. Okay, So first, Matthew highlights uh, the veiling of Christ from Israel at this time and the unveiling of Christ to a group of Gentiles. So here we have these Gentile wise men. These are men from the east, somewhere in the east, outside the bounds of Israel, who have been given God's written revelation. They held the very truth of God in their hands, just as you hold it in your hands today, with much more revelation than they had. These Gentiles came from outside the reach of those who would hear the gospel preached, the gospel proclaimed. The truth, the scriptures, heralded somewhere from a distant land, foreigners, pagans, coming to worship Jesus Christ. 
So these wise men likely came from the area of Babylon, tracing their knowledge all the way back to the time of Daniel, when he was in exile there. But when they get to Israel, nobody knows what they're talking about. We saw his star. We're coming to worship him. What are you talking about? So as they enter town, they walk about asking continuously, where is he born king of the Jews? Everywhere they went, asking. And Israel's puzzled by the request of a kingly birth. They're thrown sideways. Herod gets word of this, and the scripture says he's troubled. The chief priests, the scribes, those responsible for conducting surface worship service of Israel, those who taught the scripture, they were all baffled by the question of these wise men, these Gentile stargazers from the east. These are the professional scholars, the scribes who knew some things, Professional scholars know some things, but these had no faith. It's kind of like liberal scholars in our day. They know some stuff, they twist some stuff, and they have no faith. So this king, Herod, he was an Edomite. He was not an Israelite, which has made him a remote descendant of Esau and was ruling over this little slice of Israel, that small portion of what was left of David's great kingdom. And it had become no more than this petty client state of Rome. And here, his title was king of the Jews. He was a puppet king, is all Herod was. King of these Jews. So when he hears this word, that the king of the Jews has been born, the scripture says he becomes deeply troubled. He's rattled. He is shaken to the core. In fact, he's so disturbed that he he will go on to massacre all the young boys in Bethlehem, two years old and younger, as he had ascertained the time about which they first saw this star, which tells us that they did not come at the time of Jesus' birth. We read in the text that Jesus was living in a home. He was in a house when these wise men came. So if he ascertained from them what time the star appeared and then had all these male children slaughtered, he had them slaughtered from two years old and under according to the time ascertained from them, the scripture says. So they show up about two years or so after the birth of Jesus, which is contrary to your manger scene at home. We have a couple manger scenes. We put the wise men there anyhow. You know, actually, I think my wife has one set with the wise men on one table. Yeah, yeah. We have three wise men, about nine inches tall on one table, and then the manger scene in the other table. So that's more theologically sound. (laughs) Herod's deeply troubled. Why? Because Jesus troubles the unbelieving heart. Jesus troubles... Unbelievers. Jesus is intimidating to the unbeliever. He causes discomfort. He causes conviction. Hostility oftentimes rises up and out of those who reject him. There's trouble. You know, some people become deeply angered and venomous when you bring up the name of Jesus Christ And I'm talking about the biblical Jesus Christ. The biblical Lord. Or at the least, others will try to laugh him off. Snicker. This Lord. Now, on the other hand, the the chief priests and scribes, uh, though they know exactly where to look, okay, and what we know is the Old Testament, in answer to the question, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? They give the right answer. But the problem is they're not looking for him. They're rattled. They're not looking for him. This is like the contemporary, unbelieving, lifetime church attendee who's nothing more than a cardboard cutout. They come to church every week. They know some stuff. And they don't believe. They're they're not seeking the face of the Lord. 
They weren't on the lookout. They had no real hopeful anticipation or expectation as regards the promised coming Messiah. But they knew what the scripture said regarding where he was to be born. Bethlehem, Judah. They were certainly not in the midst of any pilgrimage to seek him out, to worship him, as these Gentile stargazers were. Foreigners entering into town. So this we see, beloved, is that grace is unveiling the Lord Jesus Christ to these far-off foreigners. And at the same time, the veil remains in the face of those who knew the most about him. Danger. Danger. So what about the masses? Well, remember this. Attitude reflects leadership. Verse 3. Matthew tells us that they too tremble and are afraid. Troubled. They're troubled by the news of these Gentiles. Where's the one born king of the Jews? Herod's troubled. The, 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 the professional scholars, they're rattled. They know what to say. They don't know what to do. Now, perhaps the masses are afraid that, you know, Herod will have some paranoid, you know, shoot-from-the-hip response. He was a very wicked man. This Herod was wicked. History says he started out very handsome, thin, vivacious, a visionary, great builder, And he died with loathsome sores on his body. His ankles, nine inches in diameter. Obese. Vile. He died a wicked man. But he was a bloodthirsty man. He died as he lived. A wicked, vile, ungodly Grossly diseased sinner. Praise God for the grace that causes you to believe. That lifts the veil. Now this is a most ironic situation. You would think that the people who held the words of the Most High in their hands and knew about the coming Messiah would be looking for that Messiah. Which would have led them on a pilgrimage to the Messiah. These guys knew what this star represented. It was veiled to them. Israel's caught completely off guard. Shocking conclusion, isn't it? To centuries of prophetic proclamation. I often think about people who sit in the church their entire lives and don't believe. They believe some facts. They become sentimental at Christmas. We're little baby Jesus. But as I always say, remember, Jesus grew up and spoke. And declared things about himself that no one has ever declared. Maybe for a short time if they're out of their mind. Like this idiot Charles Manson. Who said, I am Jesus. So Matthew's point is simple. There is the real possibility to to live a religious life, to possess divine revelation, the true, inerrant, infallible word of God, and be spiritually blind. Dead in transgressions and sins. So they can hold the truth in their hands, they can hear the truth proclaimed, they can read the truth for themselves, and yet not have eyes to see, and not have ears to hear. They'll come and listen to a preacher like this, and just blop. To them, it's like, it's like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. That's it. See, if you don't recognize your need for the Savior, you will not highly value the Savior. There's only one. And you're not him. So it's apparent that Herod is concerned with other things, his position, his place, and the stuff 
that it provides, his little throne. And again, he was just a puppet king under Rome. He doesn't see himself as a desperately needy sinner. He remained a vicious, evil man. And what about the chief priests and scribes? They too, they were obviously concerned with other things. They, they valued other things over and above this Messiah that they knew who, what was written about him. We know the condition of the scribes and Pharisees in the time of Jesus' day when he grew up and started proclaiming the truth about himself. John the Baptist saw them for what they were, a brood of vipers. Jesus said, woe to you hypocrites, time and time again. So here you have this ironic concealing of the Christ who comes from Israel to Israel for Israel for the redemption and they're not waiting for him. They're not looking for him. So they're blind to his first advent. You know, Jesus, in speaking of his second advent, he said in Luke 8, He raised the question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, we know that Scripture tells us that in the period just before the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, it will be marked by persecution, apostasy, which means to turn away from a faith you one time professed. Perhaps you were baptized, glory to the Lord God Almighty, he saved me. You live a while, the tribulation, the trials, uh, the, the, the um, discipleship process, which can sometimes be painful, they turn away and they walk away. That's apostasy. And also, before the return of Christ, will be marked by unbelief. It's the last days then and it's the last days now. Will, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth at his second advent? Asked Jesus. So it's an amazing twist. While while King Herod and, and the priests and the Jewish people are unaware of the birth of Messiah, these pagan Gentiles are searching for him with great effort from a great distance. God has unveiled something to them in his grace. What's the point? Okay, Matthew's point is just this. Christ is not merely the Savior of the Jews. He's also Savior of the world. People from throughout the world. The Scripture tells us that He will draw Gentiles from the four corners of the earth. We read in Mark chapter 13, verse 27. He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And this event, beloved, with these wise men, foreshadow that. That's a, it's a snapshot of that. He's not only the Savior of the Jews, He's the Savior of the world. And those who rest and trust in Him for salvation alone, as He's offered in the gospel, to every corner of the world... From every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, men, women, little boys, little girls who come to him as Savior of the world and put their faith and trust in him, the scripture says, shall be saved. Beautiful, amen. So, as Matthew presses this point regarding these Gentiles who didn't have the privileges that Israel had, as he presses this point, He's not being theologically novel, beloved. This isn't some new reality that that takes place all of a sudden in the New Testament. What did God promise all the way back in the old? Isaiah 11. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, the root of Jesse, who's that? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now, that doesn't mean that that every single woman or man or child is saved from throughout the world. What it means is that Jesus is the only Savior for any man, woman, or child who believes. What does that make all other religions? False. Thank you false 
No, all religions don't lead to God. No, all temples do not point to the one true God. Every steeple points to the one true God. Wrong. Wrong. He's the only God who saves, but he doesn't only save his elect ethnic Jewish people. He is the God who saves Gentiles from throughout the world. And this is a picture that foreshadows that. It's a beautiful picture. So any man, woman, boy, or girl from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation from throughout time who puts their faith and trust in the one true God, redemption was accomplished by the one true Son of God, Jesus Christ. He is the Savior of the world. That's what God so loved the world means. God so loves the world, not without exception, but without what? Distinction. Thank you. Very, very good. Amen. So God in his mercy sent his son into the world for Gentiles alike, which makes us now the true Israel of God. Galatians 6.16. You see, there's no longer one man, but God has made two that have become what? One, look at the words of Paul when he wrote the church of Ephesus, made up of Gentiles. We who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. One new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the, his, the hostility. There's a lot of hostility between believing Jews and Gentiles in the first century, was there not? Paul makes amends to this. He, he, he wants to shine some light into their theologically dark minds. So we see in the church today the, the fulfillment of this Gentile impulse that Matthew describes right here in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. You find that to be a beautiful thing? It certainly is. So there then is, is the first thing we see. We see the veiling of Christ to Israel at this time and the unveiling of Christ to Gentiles from a faraway land. So this ironic concealing of Christ to, to the people who ought to have been responding to him first. But he's revealing Christ to those who make us wonder, at least it makes me wonder, how did they know to do this? I don't know. They recognized his stars, we shall see. That's the first thing. Second thing for us to see is the, the worship that is given to Christ by these magi. The worship that is given to the Lord Jesus Christ by these magi. And, and Matthew is concerned here to, to press home this very important reason. Okay, Matthew 1, Jesus is the king. He fulfilled all the prophecies of Messiah. But, but, but Matthew's concerned that you understand that Jesus is just more than Messiah. His concern is to see that Jesus is more than just Messiah. He's, he's more than the king. He's more than the prophet. He's more than prophet, priest, and king. Amen? He is the very son of God. He's the son of God. He's God in the flesh. He is and therefore deserves to be worshipped. Notice verse 2. They come looking for the king of the Jews because they want to what? Worship him. They want to worship him. The scribes and the Pharisees are quoting scripture, but they want to worship now, we read here that Herod tries to curry favor with the Magi in order to obtain information as to where this king has been born so that, you know, I want to go worship him too. Truth or a lie? Evil lie. The reason he falsely claimed to want to worship Jesus because it was very clear to him 
that these magi were dead serious about worshiping this king. He knew they were dead serious. So we see in verse 11, when the magi get there, what does it say? They fall down and they worship him. They worship him. So Matthew makes a very important point, a very important point here to this, again, intended Jewish audience to whom Matthew was written. The first principle of Hebrew theology is what? There's one God and you're not him. There's one God, maker of heaven and earth. You shall have no other gods before you. You shall not worship any image or any person other than the one true God. Right? Don't worship anything or anyone outside of the one true God. This is what the Hebrews knew. They knew this. So when Matthew tells us that Jesus is to be worshipped, what does that tell you about Jesus? He's deity. He's God. He's divine. He's worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. He deserves to be worshipped. And even these Gentiles know that. Beautiful truth being unveiled to them. So they come and they offer their worship to Jesus. So Matthew is pressing home this fundamental truth, which many people in our day don't get. And that is the Christ child is is not simply an occasion for our annual sentiment and respect. Amen, beloved. If if, Look, if you're a Christian and, and, and Jesus becomes more magnificent to you at Christmas and you really don't think about him the rest of the year, so, you know, let's get to church so we can go worship Jesus, think again. May this be our thinking every day. He doesn't need our seasonal admiration. you know, or emotional recognition for baby Jesus. We recognize that he condescended to enter the virgin's womb, the second person of the Godhead. We have more revelation now, you see. And that much more responsible are we for what we know. He is to be the very object of our worship. And this is being pointed out to us in a very unusual way. Follow me through on this. This very unusual way. Notice, Matthew doesn't tell us who these magi are. He doesn't tell us exactly where they come from. He doesn't tell us how many there were, although our manger scenes have how many? Three. It just says they bought three gifts. We don't know how many there were. It doesn't say they were kings, although we sing we three kings of Orient are. The scripture says they were wise men, and they come. There's more than one, but there could have been many. It doesn't say they rode in on camels, although that's what our Christmas cards portray, and that's okay. But it doesn't say that. It's more probable that a group of magi like this would have traveled in a very large caravan with some protection, and likely maybe perhaps they came in on stallions. That would have been very intimidating. To hear it. Imagine them. You see in the distance, this large caravan. He gets word of this. They, they trample into town. They're asking about a king that's been born, and he's supposed to be the king. It says they brought three, three gifts. Now, one could have put all three. One could have brought all three, or they could have all chipped in with the three. It doesn't say. We're not told. Okay? They, they didn't arrive the night Jesus was born. Okay? In verse 16. When Herod saw that they had been, he had been tricked, right? They didn't come back because an angel told them not to come back. He became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And we read that when, when they saw a child with, with Mary, his mother, they fell down and worshipped him, that they were in a house, verse 11. Okay? So, a lot of stuff we don't know. We don't know how they dressed. Matthew doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us the exact nature of the star. 
that they saw in the sky. Some believe that it perhaps was a conjunction of planets, Jupiter and Venus. And in God's providence, he he caused this miracle, uh, the conjunction of these planets, to appear at this time. Or perhaps it was more supernatural, as, as, as like the Shekinah glory that we read about. in in Old Covenant Israel, that guided them through the wilderness. So they they don't tell us, Matthew doesn't tell us what the luminary was. And, And the one important thing that he does tell us is this. They worshiped Jesus. That's our second point. They worshiped Jesus. That's the point Matthew wants to drive home. He is to be worshiped. Question. Do you worship Jesus? Amen, little one. Never cease, little one. Do you worship Jesus? Do you value him more than anything else? This, this is good self-examination questions for us every Advent season. Do I worship? Do I value anything more than him? Do I seek things, stuff, people's admiration more than I seek him? Good question. Is it your passion that people worship Jesus? Does it hurt your heart when he's blasphemed? Does it hurt your heart when when he's proclaimed as one of many ways? Does it trouble your soul to see him mocked? Or do you laugh along? Are there things in this world that you love more than Jesus? Things for us to ponder. I mean, should it not be our heart's desire to worship the King of Kings, beloved? First and foremost, to seek his face. And if we're not, to go to him and ask him for the Spirit's power and presence to to stir us up to be worshipers of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, when I'm not and when I don't, that's where I go. There's no place else to go, amen? He's the source. He's the substance. He's the power. He provides the grace. Go to him. Go to him and ask because you boldly can come to the throne of grace. You know, we live for the day, do we not, when every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We long for the day. Now, is our, is our worship flawless? No. Is our worship untainted? No. Is our worship absolutely pure? I mean, has your mind been 100% focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ since you walked in these doors this morning? No. We battle in this. So Christian brothers and sisters, you are justified by what Christ has earned for you. Right? Justified position, declared free from all blame. Christ earned that for you. You were passive in that. You had nothing to do with that at all. He came to you in his grace. He caused you to believe. He moved you from the place of condemnation to the place of justification. Did you have anything to do with that? No. He also sanctified you. And that is to live out what he has earned for you. You play a part in that? Yes. Yes. Both are gifts Justification and sanctification, both are gifts, are gifts that are given to us from our Lord. Justified. Justification is passively received. Our sanctification is to be actively pursued. Get it? Actively pursued. So if you're not pursuing it, pray for help that you'll be a worshiper of this king. So our worship is responsive, in other words. Amen? It's responsive to that which has been done for us, that which we have inherited from our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we seek him, beloved. That's why we draw near to him. That's why we're here this morning. That's why we examine our hearts from time to time. That's why we go with the gospel. That's why we disciple our children in the Lord, because we're worshipers of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why you give to missions. That's why you give to the church. Because we want the gospel proclaimed. We want Jesus to be worshipped. We want Jesus to be valued. I want him to be worshipped in my life. I want him to be valued in my life. And when, I, and when I wane, I go to him, not to myself. Amen. He's the source. 
So even these distant Gentile magi that knew that Jesus was to be worshipped, okay? How much more should we know to do that and do it? That's the second point. The last thing for us to see is that the birth of Jesus fulfills prophecy. Fulfills prophecy. So Jesus is born according to the scripture. And, and, so, and so we see a quote here from Micah 5 reminding us that Jesus' birth is in Bethlehem. It fulfills prophecy. Matthew, if you notice, he not only points us back to the prophecy that preceded this event by 700 years, but also here our attention is drawn to a much, much older prophecy going back 1,400 years from this particular day. A prophecy, and I gave you a hint of this at the opening of service, it was a prophecy uh, given by a pagan unbeliever. It's recorded for us in Numbers 24. And this is where Balaam, the pagan, the unbelieving prophet for hire, hired by Balak to curse Israel, makes the prophecy of a star rising out of Judah. Fulfilled by Jesus. Look at verse 2. They came saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now back in Numbers, okay, Balaam's fourth oracle predicted the future coming of Israel's king. Look at it. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So a pagan, unbelieving prophet making a prophecy about the star that rises out of Judah, Gentiles from the east, in response, make their way to worship him. The fulfillment of the scripture. You get it? Following? In Revelation twenty two sixteen, 16, Jesus said this, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Now the prophecy Balaam gives, as I said earlier in the service, points first to David, who will destroy the head of the Moabites and the Edomites, ultimately pointing to our Lord Jesus Christ, who will destroy our ultimate enemies, Satan, sin, and death. He'll crush the head of the serpent. So why is it that these magi understood and followed the star? They come to worship him, but Herod and the chief priests and the scribes didn't. Why do some today do it and others don't? Simply because of this, beloved. You will remain blind to the glory of the Savior unless you understand and see your true need for the Savior. If you don't see your need for the Savior, you remain blind. If you don't think you're an idolater, if you don't think you're a sinner, you won't see your need to be saved. Save from? What are you saved from? The wrath of God. You're saved from God by God. That's salvation. From his wrath. By his grace. Through his son who bore the wrath in your place. If you believe. You can't see the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. You see all of this, you know what it begins with? That is understanding. It begins with wisdom. It takes wisdom. Wisdom, not human wisdom, but godly wisdom. Look at Psalm 111, verse 10. The beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. Reverent awe, respect, admiration, understanding, acknowledging. I'm a creature. He's the creator. I'm a sinner. He's the redeemer. Fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures, what? Forever. Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. You want insight to life? You want insight to life? It's in the pages of Scripture, beloved. Revealed in Jesus Christ. Promised King. Our only hope. Without which, 
You will remain a fool all your days. Okay? So now to close. I want you to notice the contrasts that are made in this text between the wise and the fool. Okay? Illustrated for us in this passage. Real quick. Notice first. The wise realize their need for the king who transcends time and space. Verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. They came. They realized that this is something greater than themselves. Okay, So the wise realized their need for this king who transcends time and space, whereas the fool becomes prideful and blind in their own little self-made kingdom. Like Herod. As I said, Oftentimes, attitude of the people reflects leadership. Secondly, the wise respond to God's prompting with a longing to worship. Verse 2. They came saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? We saw a star, it rose, and we've come to worship him. That's the wise. What happens to the fool? They become troubled in their pride by anyone who brings up or inquires about Jesus. The fool. The fool becomes troubled. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Thirdly, the the wise follow and obey the word of God. We see that in verses 4 through 6. He assembles all the chief priests. They inquired, where is he to be born? He says in Bethlehem, Herod summoned the wise, the wise men, secretly ascertaining from them what time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently. So they find out more from Scripture, and they obey the word and they go. The fool remains apathetic, the fool remains indifferent towards the Word of God. It's knowledge, knowledge versus faith. Knowledge alone doesn't save, amen? It's faith in the knowledge we have. That is to be placed in the one true God. Next, the wise continue in serving Christ by faith. Verses 7 through 9, they went. After they heard the truth, after they heard uh, more insight from the scriptures, they went, they sought after him, they found him, and they worshipped him, and they gave gifts to this king. So they continue to pursue by faith. That's the wise. The fool, he makes empty promises. The fool makes empty promises. That's Herod, right? Bring back word to me so that I can come and worship with y'all. And we'll all just worship him together. (coughs) Lie. Next, the wise rejoices over the power and glory of God. Verse 10, they saw the star. They rejoiced exceedingly. With great joy. Whereas the fool remains indifferent or fearful in their own pride. That's what we see of these Israelites. Next, the wise fall down before Christ. They worship in response to his grace. We see that in verse 11. Whereas the fool refuses to fall before Christ, but hoard for themselves. They hoard for themselves. They give nothing of themselves. And then finally, the wise take serious heed to the word of God. Being warned in a dream, verse 12, not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So the wise take serious heed to the word of God, whereas fools become exceedingly angry and attempt to eliminate Christ. Verse 16. Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And then this was to fill the prophecy spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Scriptures are fulfilled. So Jesus, the Son of God, our Maker, our only Savior, came into the world 
in seeming weakness. He humbled himself, took on a human body, and he made, when he grew up, beloved, unparalleled claims demanding that we submit to those claims. So he puts us into a place of decision. If you're a Christian, rest in this. If you're a believer, keep pursuing his face. Amen? He puts us in a place of a decision. And we will either crown him as king or crucify him. Neutral? You cannot be. You, Jesus said, are either for me or against me. No fence sitters. This Advent season. And woe to the one who despises or snickers at his claims. Because, beloved, to reject him is the unpardonable sin. Every sin you've ever committed, those who come to faith in Jesus Christ, paid for, atoned for. I don't care what it was. Deny him is the unpardonable sin. Deny me before men, Jesus said, and I will deny you before my Father. So these are some reminders for us, beloved. The fact that you believe means that God in his grace has lifted the veil. He's lifted the veil. See, when when, when you look at your life and you say, man, I came seeking Jesus. Did you? Yeah. Why? Because he was seeking you. He determined in eternity past to save you. And in time, he prompted you and drew you to himself, lifting the veil, giving you eyes to see and ears to hear. Does that mean you won't have any trouble in life? No, just look at the account of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the one who paved the way for him, John the Baptist. His head ended up on a platter, right? Where is he now? With the Lord Jesus in glory. So you'll be surrounded by false teaching in this world, false prophets, people who deny the second advent of Christ. But be assured of this, just as it said he would come the first time, he will come the second. And that could be today. So let us rejoice and let us glean whatever it is the Holy Spirit wants you to glean from this as you go out today and live out the rest of this Advent season with the second Advent in view at the same time. Amen? So we look back and we look forward because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ.